Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. I am your host, Chris Rawl. What an amazing week of sports we have in front of us. First round of the NBA playoffs is coming to a head. The NHL regular season is ending and the Stanley Cup playoffs are starting next week. And the very best event that does not take place on a field is happening, the NFL Draft. I cannot wait for all of these things. I am very excited. I have a lot of thoughts about all of them. And I have a newsletter that will contain some of those thoughts. If you have not signed up yet, please go and sign up. You can do so at www.chrisrawl.com. Hit the subscribe button, put your email in, and voila, every Wednesday morning, a little bit of something from me. There's too much stuff to talk about, so I'm going to quit advertising for things, and we are getting on to today's show where I will talk about the accumulation of talent, the importance of cohesion, and how both apply to the 2022 NBA playoffs. Winning Time is a show that is currently being broadcast on HBO and HBO Max. It's about the start of the Showtime Lakers. It's actually a strangely good television show. I wasn't expecting it. I just kind of started watching it because I like sports, shockingly, I know. Uh, but it's it's turned into a show about a lot of things that aren't necessarily just sports. However, from a sports perspective, Winning Time with John Riley and, and a lot of actors who I don't know that are actually quite good in the show, it's about the idea that talent trumps all. That's kind of how the Lakers became the Lakers as we know them, starting back in 1980 and fast forwarding all the way into present day over the last however many decades. Uh, just this idea that we need talent. We need talent and we're willing to move heaven and earth to get it. It could be just through the draft, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant. It could be a lot of high-level acquisitions, as we've seen over the years, whether that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar back in that time frame, or Shaq years later, Pau Gasol, or in the present day with LeBron and AD and how they won their last championship. Uh, but all of these eras, spanning the 80s and 2000s and 2010s, they they contain the same story. Just the fit does not matter as much as the talent. That is the motto of the Los Angeles Lakers. I point to the Shaq Kobe era and I go, you can't really have a better window into this idea. And it doesn't always work out this perfectly because you have to have otherworldly talent in order to make a clunky fit work. But Shaq and Kobe, that's otherworldly talent. In any given year that they were together, you could make a pretty solid case that they were at worst, two of the three best players in basketball alongside Tim Duncan. In some years, I'd look at it and go, are these just the two best players in basketball and they're on the same team? It doesn't matter that they're sniping at one another through the media and Kobe's complaining that Shaq's out of shape all the time and Shaq's complaining that Kobe just wants the ball and he's not giving it to him and Phil Jackson's complaining about both the same thing and it was just this ongoing soap opera every single year, 2000, 2001, culminating in that 2004 season that split everything apart where they lose in the finals to the Pistons that capped off this four-year run of a bunch of championships, one NBA Finals loss. And looking back on it, I go, it's, pretty, it's a pretty incredible testament to the talent that they had on hand with just those two players, that they were able to weather all of this off-court stuff over and over and over. And when push came to shove, they would just win championships. Again, the story of the Los Angeles Lakers franchise and something that I personally kind of really subscribe to. I know the Lakers are getting pissed on in present day. 
And for good reason, you know, they're an easy team to make fun of. They miss out on the play-in entirely, and everybody's holding their belly and laughing and going, yeah, just this strategy doesn't always work. And I'd push back a little bit on this and say, well, Russell Westbrook did submarine the 2022 season. And the fit is definitely atrocious. But again, you can work around that. What the problem was with the 2022 Lakers is AD didn't play a lot. LeBron missed games. And the biggest sin of, of Russell Westbrook in present day is just that he's not very good at basketball. You know, the talent isn't there. That's the bigger error in Lakers judgment alongside of the fit issues. But if Russell Westbrook is 2014 Russell Westbrook, you can make a stronger case that mm, there's some reality where this can work out. Maybe it's not a high percentage. I'm always going to question whether or not Russell Westbrook can fit onto a winning basketball team. But that level of talent can make sense to some degree. 2022 Russell Westbrook does not make sense in any capacity because he's not going to fit on your roster. He's not going to do anything that he doesn't want to do. And he's not going to bring a lot of good basketball to the table. It's just the worst of all the worlds, right? So I mentioned that I also subscribe to the same theory that the Los Angeles Lakers subscribe to, that talent is greater than everything. You move heaven and earth to get it. You worry about everything else later. For me, I kind of think that this comes from my college football fandom, which is a very different world than professional sports. But I also think it's a very good window into this idea because I can get lost sometimes in coaching and plucky upstart programs and the way that, oh, this team really understands how to play with one another. And it's a bunch of super seniors and their season and all this kind of stuff. And I can get sucked into sometimes going, this is going to be a good matchup. Oh, man, this could. They could roll with this other team. Let's say Alabama, a team that always has the finest talent. And then I see a motivated Alabama step on the field to play a team like Arkansas or Tennessee, who in any given year, I'm going, this team, you know, Josh Heupel, he's kind of turning around this Tennessee team. I like what they got going on. What's going to happen here? This could be an exciting game. And I watch a quarter and a half and it's just decimation. And if I need to remember, I go, oh yeah, this is most definitely a sport where talent trumps everything. The powers at the top, they're just recruiting juggernauts. It's just five stars, five stars, five stars. And that's how Ohio State is built. That's how Georgia has just built a national title team. That's how Alabama has been built for the entire Nick Saban tenure. Now, it's impossible to get that large of a talent discrepancy in professional sports because everybody is pretty good. Even your not good teams and not good players, they're still professional athletes. They're in the top point whatever percentile in the world of just being gifted at their craft. Uh, but despite this, despite this shrinking in the talent gap, I still abide by the talent is greater than everything philosophy. I just think it's that important. I think it's why you're going to see a lot of strange things happen this week with the NFL draft because NFL teams, they're a lot like the Lakers. They care less about fit. They care less about cohesion and, and teamwork and all this kind of stuff. I mean, we have so many examples in the history of that sport where talent is going to trump everything. The Legion of Boom Seahawks is the one that I always will think of who literally would fight one another in the locker room, including before the Super Bowl, when they come out and pummel the Denver Broncos and their record-breaking offense that year with Peyton Manning. I mean, the Seahawks are fighting, physically fighting one another in the locker room pregame. They come out and womp them by 30-some-odd points because there was just that much talent on the defensive side of the ball. 
Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman and Michael Bennett and so many great players that we've seen over the years. Now, it's not a 100% foolproof thing. And I think what I, I've been thinking about recently is I like to check myself sometimes because I'll go far down a road and I just go, well, this, these other teams are doing it wrong because they're not abiding by the philosophy that I believe. And then I have reminders on the flip side that I go, oh, yeah, okay. This isn't a foolproof strategy. And there are alternate paths. Uh, the idea that talent trumps everything, I still believe it, but it doesn't always work. Many times it doesn't work for quite some time. And that's been percolating on my mind as I've watched the Dallas-Utah series in the NBA. Uh, I'll say this. I'm recording this before Monday night's games. So game four of Boston-Brooklyn, game five of Philly-Toronto, and game five of Dallas-Utah. I won't be talking about the results. That's fine. Uh, this is more about the philosophy behind what is taking place rather than kind of analysis of each individual game. But with game five looming tonight, an enormous game for the Utah Jazz franchise. Like literally their entire organization hangs in the balance. I think everybody is in agreement. If they lose this series, uh, there is going to be great change within the organization. And I've been thinking about this idea of talent and cohesion and coaching, how all these things work, which you want more of, the ways that you can win if you have a deficiency in one of those areas. And I've been thinking a lot about that because of games one through three of this Dallas-Utah series. Luca obviously ruled out with the calf strain that he suffered in the season finale. So the Mavericks are bringing this roster to the table through those first three games until Luca returned in game four that I just look at and I'm going, there's no way. There is no way you can stay afloat with this collection of players. Because I would look across the board and I go, man, it just seems like Utah has the infinitely more talented roster. There's Donovan Mitchell. He's way better than everybody who the Lucas Mavericks have. And Rudy Gobert and Boyan Bogdanovich and Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson. I'm just looking at all these players, recognizable NBA players who've had varying levels of success throughout their careers. And I'm going, aren't all these, it seems like all these players might be better than everybody who Dallas has. Uh, if you just went across the board and, and cross match these lineups and individual players being trotted out before Luca returned, I think a lot of people thought what I did, which is just the series doesn't seem like it should or can be that competitive. I don't really know how Dallas is going to bridge that gap. Now, games one through three, are a testament to what a team that understands itself and has cohesion and has really high-level coaching, what that can do to bridge a talent gap. <laughs> the Mavericks, they, they understand how to play basketball with the talent at hand, whether that's with Luka or without Luka. Uh, this really diminished version of an NBA roster, give a ton of credit to Jason Kidd and all of those players because they, they looked at it and they said, no, we know exactly what we need to do. We have a blueprint for how to play against this Utah team. Yeah, they're talented. Great. They're very rigid. They play basketball in one way. And so we think that maybe we don't have as good of talent, but we have the pieces to attack that specific rigid style of playing basketball, specifically on the defensive end. We've seen a blueprint. We've seen Jamal Murray do that to them two years ago. What can a pretty quick point guard do? Hey, Jalen Brunson, you're a reasonably quick point guard. Hey, Spencer Dinwiddie. You got some shiftiness to you. You can go and distribute and score. All right, let's go and look at that. 
Let's go and look at what John Morant was able to do against him last year in the first round of the playoffs. Or let's look at what the five-out attack that the Clippers rolled out last year. Let's take a page from that. Hey, Maxi Kleba. Hey, Davis Bertans. Yeah, in a vacuum, neither of you are very good NBA basketball players, but you have certain skills that if we put you in the right spots and you trust in your teammates and yourself, uh, you know, we think we could maybe attack Utah in a way that they're unprepared for. And we saw that. We've seen that, especially throughout the first three games of the series. This Dinwiddie and Brunson all-out attack. Dorian Finney-Smith and Reggie Bullock giving them little problems on the defensive end, shooting threes. I mentioned Bertans and Kleba. It's just, let's spread them out, let's spread them out, let's spread them out. And the Jazz are not equipped to play this brand of basketball. And that is true. <laughs> we, we have a lot of years of evidence of that. Uh, and in an interesting twist, Game 4 got me thinking even more about this talent and cohesion and coaching blend. Uh, because the first three games, the talent discrepancy mattered much less to Dallas than their ability to formulate a perfect game plan, one that has been laid out by other teams, to abide by that game plan, to put the Jazz in these very familiar and uncomfortable situations, and then just pick them apart via that strategy. Game four, it upped the talent level. Luca returns, who's one of the very best players in basketball. He looked a little bit slower than he normally is, but that's to be expected coming back from a calf injury. But what was interesting in that game is the Mavericks offense seemed a little less terrifying from a stylistic standpoint for what Utah wants to run. They seemed a little bit more comfortable because Dallas was playing a lot slower and more methodical. There was a lot less of Jalen Brunson doing his Jamal Murray impression, just dicing up the entire scheme getting Bogdanovich on him or Donovan Mitchell and just blowing by him and getting floaters or layups or kicking into the corner. There was a lot less of that. And Luca had a great game in his own right. I mean, 30 points, 10 assists, whatever he had. But it seemed like it was more catered to the style of basketball that the Jazz wanted to play. Now, the up in talent, again, I'm recording this before game five, so we will all know the result by the time this comes out of what happened in game five. And the bump in talent, that could be just as important. You know, Luca, he's a little bit quicker in game five. Shows out, Dallas wins. Or it could somehow be playing into the Jazz hands a little more than I would have expected prior to the series. Never in a million years would I be sitting there going, it might be better if Luka plays just from a stylistic standpoint. It's more of the Jazz style of basketball. If he's not there, Dallas leans into this cohesive attack that, yeah, maybe doesn't have as much talent, but is giving them fits. It's an interesting thought. Just... You think about it in terms of two meters next to one another, this coaching and cohesion and this talent side, and you're moving one up and one down. What's the break-even point? Where do you want to be? What's the equilibrium? And if one goes down, how much do you have to raise one and the other bar in order to be successful? We've seen a pretty good blueprint of that from Dallas. Um, so we go back to the talent discussion. And I want to read something that was written it was just before the playoffs began. It was by Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN. He was writing about super teams and just this era that the NBA has been in of player empowerment and especially the ability to go and just form super teams, talent accumulation via the players, essentially, uh, and how that hasn't, that's, that's worked in some instances and had just spectacular failures in other instances. 
and what the alternative routes are. So here are a couple paragraphs from Arnovitz about that. The composition of the postseason field that tips off this weekend reveals an emerging truth about the NBA. Super teams like the Nets and Lakers are out. Homegrown squads, with perhaps the strategic acquisition of a final piece, are very much in. The Phoenix Suns tower over the rest of the league. The Memphis Grizzlies, almost an entirely homegrown roster, are a decisive second. The Milwaukee Bucks enter the playoffs as the incumbent champions whose blueprint was used to build something special. And the Boston Celtics staged a second-half rally to vault themselves toward the top of the standings, with the East's best point differential by a wide margin. The teams best equipped for success aren't those meeting with marquee free agents in July or trying to nab stars at the trade deadline in February, but are those that develop from within, end quote. So I'm kind of torn about this particular idea, this idea that super teams are out and homegrown rosters are in. I don't think it's necessarily as simple as that. I mean, two years ago, the Lakers won a championship with this exact strategy. The Warriors were winning championships Prior to that with Kevin Durant with the exact same strategy, just go and acquire, uh, just go and pluck the very best players off the market, put them on your team. And if they are that good as Kevin Durant is, as LeBron and AD are, you can win a championship doing that. In an ideal world, I, I agree that your roster is homegrown. You, you have time to let them grow and flourish together and build up that cohesion rather than just plucking somebody out and plucking another person out and throwing them together into a snow globe and shaking up and saying, hey, go ball out. That's really hard to do. We have a lot of examples that that's going to probably fail at the very start, even with really incredible talent. First year of the Miami Heat with LeBron, Wade, and Bosch, they didn't win a championship because it's just really hard to get an understanding of how to play basketball with one another that quickly. So homegrown, give them time to build up, build up that cohesion, that coaching, all that kind of stuff. That, that's the ideal thing for sure. Now, the series that I have been most interested in that might be over by the time this podcast is released on Tuesday morning is the Celtics against the Nets, two teams mentioned by Arnovitz. Two teams that are abiding by the same philosophy, talent acquisition, talent acquisition, talent acquisition, but got there in really different ways. The Nets, the super team approach. Let's just go and grab everybody off the market and worry about the rest later. Boston has been a lot more in-house, especially with kind of the three beating hearts of the team, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Marcus Smart. Uh, this series has been really interesting on a basketball level, and it's really interesting as a contrast in the importance of talent cohesion. You really see it in this series because you see a team that has been given time and coaching and room to grow together on the Boston side, and you see a team on the Brooklyn side that has a ton of talent, including as good of a one-two punch as you are possibly going to find in Durant and Kyrie, but through injuries and Kyrie not being vaccinated and just random things that have happened, they haven't been given a lot of time to grow as a roster to find that cohesion. And we're really seeing that in this series because the story of the playoffs so far for me has been the Boston Celtics defense. I just, I cannot get enough of it. <laughs> I've been telling my friends about it go, listen, if you're going to cut out a little time, just go and watch this. This is the good stuff. This is why the NBA can be appealing in the postseason in stark contrast to a lot of the regular season, because when world-class athletes are all trying simultaneously, it is breathtaking. A unit, a cohesive unit working together like the Boston Celtics have been trotting out 
it is astounding. It's what talent and cohesion looks like in its most perfect form. It's five players on a string. You go and watch anything that has occurred through the first three games of Boston, Brooklyn, and you go, hmm, this is what you have at your disposal when you have Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, about as good of a trio of perimeter defenders you're going to have, but then that's supported by this backline of, in this series, Al Horford, now Robert Williams. I mean, just incredible talent that all understands how to play together as a unit, which is very important. That's not something that just magically appears. You don't just put people on a court and they automatically understand how to play with one another. That takes time to build. Again, on the talent scale, you're trusting if the talent is that good, we can weather the storm in the early going because the talent will find a way to just hack out wins. And over the course of time, once we develop that cohesion, we're going to have something like what Boston has on defense right now. We're going to have just a championship caliber unit that everybody can look at and go, yes, that will 100% or certain be the backbone of a championship contender. There's just no way around it. I mean, I have, I personally have never seen Kevin Durant more frustrated and helpless on the offensive side of the ball. He is one of the very best offensive players I have ever watched in my life. I've never seen just this inability of him to do virtually anything through three games of this series. The last two games that Boston has played, games two and three, again, I'm recording this before game four tonight. The last two games they played against Kyrie Irving after his explosion in game one, it, it is Perfect defense. It is picture perfect defense against two all time offensive talents. That's what can happen in a perfect world when you get talent, you get cohesion, you give it room to grow, you give it sunlight and water and nurture it, right? Now, on the flip side is the Nets, who, yeah, Arnovitz is saying super teams are out. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I, I don't know. I don't think the strategy is going anywhere because everybody wants talent. That's just a no brainer. But it's pretty stunning for me to think about a person who always goes, no, get talent and worry about the rest later. Talent trumps everything. It's stunning for me to think about as I reflect upon this philosophy about the Nets going through two years of a roster that has sported Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and James Harden a ton. And now Ben Simmons is on the roster and he's not playing. And they're going to have one playoff series win to show for those two seasons. That is astounding to me. That is mind blowing. In a sport that there's such a value on individual talent. There's only five players that can be on the court at the same time. So if you got one or two or three stars at any given time, that is an incredible advantage that you will have over every team in basketball virtually. And yet for a variety of reasons that I mentioned, the, the talent just hasn't necessarily fit. Luck, timing, circumstance, individual decisions, all that kind of stuff, just moving pieces that have not been able to clip together into place despite the talent on hand. And now, shockingly, it seems like Brooklyn's time has almost come and gone. This team that when they were first pieced together, and especially once they acquired Harden last season, I just thought, all right, well, this is going to be a perennial NBA Finals contender for the foreseeable future, and I would be absolutely stunned if this team does not win at least one NBA championship. (laughs) And now a year and a half later, I'm sitting here going, I would be absolutely stunned if this team won virtually anything just doesn't seem very likely. And this has been the story of the playoffs so far to me. Uh, Again, think of the meters, the talent meter, the cohesion meter, and going back to the super team versus the up and coming uh, homegrown style rosters. There's a lot of just 
various blends of these things that I find interesting. The other series that I've been watching pretty closely, even though the games haven't necessarily been that good, but it's tied at 2-2, Memphis and Minnesota. There's a lot of interesting stuff that goes into this particular series because it's two up-and-coming teams with a lot of talent, with a lot of depth, pretty much everything being homegrown, and both are being given that room to grow. Now, they're at the really early stages, both of these teams, whether it's Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards, or even D'Angelo Russell, who's somehow the vet, but not really a veteran. And on the Memphis side, it's Morant and Jaron Jackson and just all these pieces that are really young. You can see the talent when you watch this series on both sides. Um, you can also see the growing pains <laughs> on both sides. There are times of this series that I'm just flabbergasted by what's going on. I don't even understand it. And, and that's part of building up your reps in a situation that maybe you don't have a ton of experience in. Uh, playoff reps, that's a real thing, you know? It's a different brand of basketball than the regular season. I've been talking about that for the last two weeks. So you watch John Morant right now when I go, uh, this dude is an incredible talent, but I kind of need a little bit more control than I've seen out of you in the last couple games there, pal. Games three and four on the road in Minnesota, not his finest hours. You know, he's turning it over seven times in game three, shooting, I think, five for 18. He's four for 13 in game four. He's just, he seemed set one speed too high. Just pump it down, get back in the flow of the game, and maybe get a better understanding for the cadence of playoff basketball. And I have a lot of confidence that he'll be able to do that because he is very talented and he's being given room to grow. That's how this kind of stuff works. We see growing pains with early stars all the time. Kobe Bryant, remember him airballing against the Jazz? I mean, it's a real thing. Carl Anthony Towns on the other side, a lot of talent. I don't know how I feel about it. I just, there's multiple plays a game and sometimes large stretches where I go, I just, I don't know what's going through your brain at this time. I, I honestly don't. If you played basketball before, I don't know what you're thinking or doing. Then there are other stretches where he's just scorching hot from three and attacking the rim. And I'm going, oh, well, this looks like this could be just a star for a long, long time. There's talent there. What it amounts to, some of that's on the player, some of that's on the situation, some of that is on coaching, and some of that is being able to build up cohesion over time with the other talented pieces that you have at hand. So there's all sorts of things going on in the series, but the thing that is not up for debate is the talent. It's there. So the path forward for the Grizzlies, the path forward for the Timberwolves, it's about refining it. It's about, let's get this to mesh with our roster. Those are the ways that you end up winning an NBA championship. Again, I'll go back to the Celtics and I say, that team looks like it's a step in front of you guys because they've had more time. They're a little bit more mature. They've had more playoff reps. They seem better equipped in present day right now to win an NBA championship because we're seeing the fruits of all of these labors, that process of refinement and getting everybody to mesh together. So I'll point to last year in closing is just, this is what talent and cohesion looks like. Go back to last year's NBA finals. Two teams that really are very clean and clear pictures of what talent and cohesion looks like. Phoenix, it's the one acquisition to a homegrown roster. It's Chris Paul who comes in to a roster that I think a lot of people thought, this is talent, but it's wandering in the wilderness. It needs to be refined. It needs to be corralled and channeled properly. That's where the Chris Paul acquisition comes in. Point God, the dude who just knows how to play basketball in his sleep, he's a supercomputer. Soon as he's there, we see it. We go, oh, all right. Well, now I think a lot more of Devin Booker as an individual player and DeAndre Ayton and Mikkel Bridges and Cam Johnson go down the list of all these players that 
now we're seeing the vision of what all of them can be individually and collectively. NBA Finals team last year, take it to game six. This year, you know, 60 some odd win team, favorites in the West. The Bucks, same kind of idea. It's one acquisition, Drew Holiday in this case, to a, a mostly homegrown roster, especially at the very top, Giannis and Chris Middleton. Now, the fit with this team was clunky at times. And many people, including myself, question their ability to play championship basketball. I questioned it during the net series as they were going down 2-0 in that series. And then I questioned it after they just had a catastrophic, heartbreaking loss in game five to go down 3-2 of that series. And I'm going, there's no way you're coming back. This crunch time offense is a complete bog. I don't know. I just don't, I don't necessarily see it. I don't see the fit. Yeah, there's talent. Giannis is awesome. Middleton and Holiday, yeah, they're good. Are they championship good as twos and threes on a championship? I don't know. Then they come storming back. They win game seven. They beat Atlanta. They go down 2-0 in the Phoenix series. I'm going, ah, I just don't see it. They don't look. The fit is not as seamless as what I'm seeing on Phoenix's side. Then they win game three. Then they win game four. Then they win game five. And Giannis is having a 15-10 in the game six. And I'm still questioning in my mind up through about game five. And once they're up 3-2 and they're going home for game six, I'm going, oh, okay, I, I understand. I understand the talents individually of this team, and I understand collectively how they work, especially on the defensive side of the ball. That's really where it clicked into my mind, especially on a cohesion front, because Drew Holiday, holy mackerel, as an on-ball defender, absolutely terrifying, giving fits to Paul and Booker. They would just, whoever was the person they wanted to try and rub out of the game, Holiday, you're getting that main assignment. And then you're going to have a hell of a lot of other phenomenal defenders right behind you, whether that's Middleton or Giannis or Brooke Lopez or a bunch of other pieces that they used in that series effectively on the defensive side of the ball. You saw the talent, you saw the cohesion. And by the time they're holding up the Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of game six, it's clicking in a place in my mind. I'm going, okay, I get it. Uh, I was wrong about this team, but this is what talent and cohesion looks like in a roundabout way. It still taps into the philosophy that I had or have of talent trumps everything. My questions about talent, uh, they were wrong. They were answered by Milwaukee emphatically. Now, going back to those two teams, you suffer a reduction in talent and you got to try to make do in other areas. And we're seeing that now with both of these teams. Injury to Chris Middleton. He's out for the rest of their first round series against Chicago and hamstring injury to Devin Booker who's not going to be back for the Pelican series. You see that reduction in talent and you go, oh, well, now both are in first round series that are closer than expected. I think we just thought the Bucks would blow the doors off Chicago. And now they're probably going to do that through five games, but it was closer than I thought. And the Suns especially, they're now in a dogfight against the Pelicans. They lose game four going away. The series is tied 2-2. I mean, there's an enormous game five at home taking place that the Suns, have to win uh, because that reduction in talent, the thing that I just, I think you always need that comes down a little bit, it, it brings other issues up and the Pelicans have been able to really nitpick and, and force the issue in a way that maybe they couldn't have if Devin Booker were still here. So now that sets the stage for what's going to be a juicy game five and Phoenix, they're going, all right, uh, Booker's not here, but we trust and we hope that the cohesion that we have built up over these last two years can make up for the absence of Booker, one of the most talented players in basketball. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Chris Rawls Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. If you have not subscribed to my newsletter, you should. It is easy. You go to chrisrawl.com. You click on the subscribe button. You put your email in. Every Wednesday morning, I'll send you something. And hopefully it brings a little ray of sunshine into your day. So again, thank you for listening to the show. I'll be back on Friday morning. In the meantime, enjoy the NBA playoffs. Enjoy the incredible climax of the NHL regular season and enjoy the first night of the NFL draft. And I will talk to you later. Later.